0: Good evening everyone and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's President and CEO and I am really thrilled to see so many of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Um, I want to remind everyone who hasn't yet seen our uh, two great exhibitions on view right now at New York Historical, one of them the Battle of Brooklyn, a really phenomenal show that I know uh, all of you who love history, especially this period of history, well, a little bit earlier, we will um, we'll really thrill to, to see this very important, uh, though we lost it, very important battle of the Revolutionary War played out in our galleries. And on our second floor is an exhibition um, on elections. Uh, we focus on the 1960s, um, but I know that you'll find much uh, that is relevant from that very contentious period in today's campaign. Tonight's program, John Quincy Adams Debate, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Program, and as always I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great generosity which has enabled us to bring so many fine historians and writers to this auditorium. I'd also like to uh, thank all of the Chairman's Council members who are with us in our audience this evening for all their great support on behalf of this wonderful institution. Tonight's program will last about an hour and it will include a question and answer session. There will also be a formal book signing following the program, and copies of our speakers' books will be available for sale in our museum kiosk store right outside the auditorium on the Central Park West side. We're thrilled to welcome James Traub to the New York Historical Society. Mr. Traub is a columnist and a regular online contributor at Foreign Policy. He's written for many other publications, including The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, and New York Review of Books. He teaches foreign policy at New York University, and he is the author of several books, including his latest, John Quincy Adams' Militant Spirit. As an aside, I got to know him now a very long time ago when he wrote a fabulous book called City on on a Hill, which was um, really about, uh, about an institution that I worked at at the time called City University of New York, City College more specifically. We're also so glad to welcome back Robert Kagan. Dr. Kagan is a senior fellow with a project on international order and strategy in the foreign policy program at Brookings. He's also an author and contributing columnist to the Washington Post. He was named one of Politico's 50 thinkers, doers, and visionaries transforming American politics in 2016 where he listed James Traub's biography of John Quincy Adams as his favorite book of the year. Additionally, Dr. Kagan serves as a member of the Secretary of State's Foreign Affairs Policy Board and he is the co-chairman of the Bipartisan Working Group on Egypt. His most recent book, a New York Times bestseller, is The World America Made. Uh, As always, before we begin, I'd like to ask you to please make sure that anything that makes noise, like a cell phone, is switched off. And now, please join me in welcoming our speakers to the stage.
1: Thanks very much, Louise. Um, so, so, tonight, uh, Bob and I are having a debate, uh, but it, it won't be that kind of debate. Um, I promise not to ask you to publish your tax returns if you promise not to ask me to publish my emails. And I
2: won't deny things that I've said in the past. Yeah. I'll, okay. I'm I'll admit hold you to everything that, that yeah. I've said.
1: Yeah. Okay, so it's going to be a, it's, I think it's something more like, Uh, Bob and I will try to work our way towards shedding light on something that we both think about and write about and and talk about a lot. So I'm going to take the privilege of, since it's my book, of of going first and saying a few things and then then Bob will tell you why what I said was wrong. Um, So our subject is, was John Quincy Adams a, a realist? And so we're talking about, his worldview, And so uh, in my book, I say not only that John Quincy Adams had a worldview, uh, but that he probably was the first statesman to have a coherent view, which brought together both a sense of domestic policy and of foreign policy. And I should give a brief shout out before I go any further, because actually there was a very, very good, very short book uh, by a scholar named Charles Edel. Um, about Adams that came out while I was writing my book called uh, John Quincy Adams and um, the Grand Strategy of the Republic, which, which makes this argument. And I, I mostly, though not wholly, agree with what he says. So, so if I had to summarize my sense of what his world view was, it would be something like expansion at home, restraint abroad. And if you try to think of a modern analogy to that, it would be something like the language that the Chinese used to use and, alas, no longer do, peaceful rise. That is the sense that here was this immense continental power with huge latent strength. And in order to work out all of its internal dynamics and its internal contradictions, uh, it was essential to have a, a tranquil world uh, abroad. and that, that, I think, briefly summarizes Adams's views. So uh, I would never say that he was the first person to think along these lines, not at all. Um, the first document, the first great document that lays out a strategy of American foreign policy, of course, was, was uh, George Washington's farewell address. And Washington famously cautioned against having standing alliances or, for that matter, uh, antipathies. Uh, And the part of it that we tend not to to notice as much um, was his statement that thanks to our detached and distant situation, the period is not far off when we may defy material injury from external annoyance, meaning that the United States had this incredibly lucky geographical situation in the world oceans on either side. Uh, And because of that, it would someday, maybe someday soon, uh, become a great nation. And until that time, it was very important that it keep itself remote from all of these European uh, broils. And so I think of Adams as someone who essentially turned those broad principles into a coherent doctrine and did so in the ensuing generation after Washington. if you think about Adams's career, he, you know, he was a senator in, in the early 19th century, from 1804 to 1808, uh, and he was, for example, a, a supporter of the Louisiana Purchase at a time when virtually everyone else from any of the New England delegations opposed it because they saw, rightly, that it would dilute the power of New England. Adams felt this was America's destiny. This was this incredible gift that America had received that would allow it to fulfill its destiny as a, as a, a, uh, a continental uh, nation. Um, when he was um, Secretary of State uh, 12 years later, uh, he drove a ruthless bargain with Spain, then a declining power, as the United States was a rising power, in order to gain not only Florida and Arkansas, which was what everyone expected, but a line across the Pacific. It was quite literally just a line. It was a hypothetical thing, but it reached the Pacific. And for Adams, this was a – he thought then it was the greatest achievement of his life, that America had actually made its connection to the – Pacific Ocean and, again, was fulfilling its destiny. And if you think of his time as president, which was totally unsuccessful, he had a very, very, very ambitious domestic agenda of a kind of government driven uh, expansionary policy of the kind that, in fact, Abraham Lincoln finally fulfilled many, many years later. So on the one side, this this sense of adopting policies that would drive America across its continent and achieve, achieve greatness thereby. But the other side of that, and that's the part which leads me to call him a realist, and we can talk a little bit later about what that word means, is this his his deep sense of the need for prudence and restraint in America's relations abroad. Again, as part of this Washington uh, idea. And so in the 1790s, when he was a diplomat and both England and France had engaged in provocations that had whipped up a nationalist fervor. In both cases, Adams was very strongly counseling his fellow Americans against uh, falling prey to that and engaging in hostilities and basically uh, ending this, this kind of lucky situation that Washington had talked about. And in one of his letters he said, if resentment were a good or safe foundation for policy measures, few Americans perhaps would be disposed to go further than I would. But of all the guides that a nation can follow, passion is the most treacherous and prudence the most faithful. So this idea really comes to a head during uh, Adams's tenure as Secretary of State and that's kind of the moment in which this dispute about how we should think about his foreign policy becomes most acute. And so by this time, the era that Washington had forecast when America could basically bid defiance to the world had finally arrived. And the question was, well, what should America do with its its power now that it was no longer cowering behind the Atlantic as it had been a generation earlier? Many leading figures of the day, and especially Henry Clay, uh, whom Adams viewed as his chief rival for the presidency in 1824, uh, felt that America needed to champion the cause of liberty abroad. In South America, where Spain's colonies had declared their independence and declared themselves as republics, uh, and in Europe, where Greece was fighting against Turkey for its, for its independence. Uh, Adams' most famous speech was a July 4th oration that he gave in 1821, which was really his, intent, his, his intended answer to Clay and what he saw as Clay's worldview. And this is where he said the thing for which he is most famous. He said, uh, America has abstained from interference in the concerns of others, even when the conflict has been for principles to which she clings, as to the last vital drop that visits the heart. And then the famous expression, she goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. She is the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. She is the champion and vindicator only of her own. So. America should limit its role abroad to that of well-wisher, even when the, the values that America holds dear are being threatened. This issue then becomes part of the debate inside the cabinet in 1823 when Monroe decides to deliver the address that we now know as the Monroe Doctrine. And what we know about that debate, alas, only comes from Adams. This is the advantage for keeping a diary. When we study these things today, the only person whose, whose description we're reading is, is Adams. And so it's clear from, from what Adams writes that there's uh, no disagreement that uh, the United States must make a strong statement that no colonies will be permitted to be established uh, in the New World, either in North America or in South America. But the big debate was, what should we say about events that are specifically in Europe? And Monroe, as well as John Calhoun, who was the Secretary of War, uh, were eager to speak out against the French. The French had had overthrown Republican rule in Spain, and they felt it was crucial for the United States, as the great leader of Republicanism in the world, to stand up and speak out about that, as well as this ongoing question of, of Greece's war with Turkey. Adams sharply disagreed, and he said that doing that would be seen as a summons to arms against all Europe and for objects of policy exclusively European. And he then describes his dogged pursuit of Monroe, including going into the White House and and basically, practically pinning him to the wall to get Monroe to agree that this, in fact, was a thing he, he must not say Uh, Indeed, he finally succeeded. He succeeded in getting Monroe to tamp down what he was going to say, and so in the speech, Monroe does allude to Spain, but he doesn't mention France. He doesn't mention the Holy Alliance, which is the alliance of of autocratic nations, Uh, and he said, in very much the language Adams had used two years before, of events in that quarter of the globe, we have always been anxious and interested spectators. Nevertheless, in the wars of the European powers in matters relating to themselves, we have never taken any part nor does it comport with our policy to do so. So when I use this word realism and when others like George Kennan have looked back to Adams as a, as a realist, uh, they're thinking of this idea that, it, that America should carefully follow its national interests that those national interests should be separate from the values which it holds dear at home and that in the balance between what Adams calls passion and prudence, one should always lean towards prudence. So Bob, would you say either that I've mischaracterized how you understand Adams or that that may be a correct characterization of Adams, but it's actually not a correct characterization of realism? Or some
2: combination of the two. Or
1: both. <laughs> or both. Um, well, first of all, let me
2: just uh, say that um, this de- debate is an excuse to talk about uh, this wonderful book that uh, Jim Traub has written, and I'm a big fan of this book. And I must say, I'm a big fan of talking about John Quincy Adams and history now, and I, and I want to congratulate all of you for being here because there are people thinking about other things at this moment, and we're doing the right thing. I, I, I basically wanted to be Put into a coma and aroused on on November 9th, and this is the closest that I can. Not that this is not that this is a coma-like experience. Thank you for saying, thank Bob. I'm really yeah. so
1: touched by the idea. This was coma inducing. No, induced. no, this is this is
2: yeah. preferable okay. to a coma. Preferable so, to a coma. There's um, a headline for you. So yeah, I, it's a it's a delight, and I, I will also, in the in the interest of full disclosure, admit that that Jim and I have done this before, no. and therefore he's honed his argument a little bit to. Uh, but, um, and one of the things that I particularly like about this book, and it's not true about the way people generally talk about John Quincy Adams, is that there's, there's a tremendous amount of space given to John Quincy Adams' post-presidential career. And it's really the most extraordinary post-presidential career that anyone's ever had, and, uh, which is to say that he joined, he entered Congress as a member of the House and spent the rest of his life fighting slavery. Uh, which was really quite an extraordinary thing for an ex-president to do, and really tells you a lot about what kind of person John Quincy Adams was. And it also tells you why he certainly was not anyone's definition of a realist, Uh, because a realist would not have devoted his life to fighting slavery, and a realist would not have said this which is that a dissolution of the Union for the cause of slavery would be followed by a war between the two severed portions of the Union. It seems to me that its result might be the extirpation of slavery from this whole continent, and calamitous and desolating as this course of events in its progress must be, so glorious would be its final issue that as God shall judge me, I dare not say that it is not to be desired. He said that in 1819, by the way. Um, So, and if you look at many of the decisions that he made, uh, he clearly placed the moral question of slavery above what I think any realist would have said is the national interest, the way realists tend to define the national interest, which is almost entirely a tangible, it's about security, it's about economic well-being. And by the way, most realists look at the, Western expansion, including the acquisition of the former Mexican territories of the Southwest, as in, un, indubitably in the national interest, because it gave us this great continent. And they're perfectly willing to ignore the fact that those acquisitions led directly to the Civil War and half a million dead and the worst sort of experience that the United States ever had. And how that is in our interest, I'll never understand. But... Um, But this was something that Adams had on his mind uh, a great deal. Now, there's many ways to define realists, and realists are very clever about defining it. First of all, you just love to be called a realist because you're a realist, and that makes the rest of you guys unrealistic. And so it's great to be a realist. But also, if you try to pin them down as to what they actually are, there's there's defensive realism and offensive. I find it all offensive, but there's offensive and defensive realism, and there's neorealism. But at the core of realism, I think, is a a conviction that moral ends uh, may or may not be something for individuals to pursue, but they are not what nations should be focusing on, and that the people who are stewards of the nation's foreign policy have to focus on what realists refer to as national interests um, and not uh, crusades uh, that, as they would put it, but not placing morality or much less ideology uh, at the center of your decision of one's decision making. and in in that respect, um, I would say that is not a way of describing John Quincy Adams, that certainly uh, Jim is right that he had a very strong sense of expanding the power of the country, but he also had a very clear and strong moral sense about the purposes of the United States. And so uh, this quotation that, uh, that Jim has used is the realist's mantra. I mean, if, 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 if he hadn't said it, they wish that they could have created it. We go not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. And the problem with this particular speech, which, has been, which was pulled out uh, to make a point about the way we ought to be thinking about foreign policy, uh, is, as is so often the case with these kinds of wonderful, perfect quotations, uh, taken out of context uh, and misleading, really, if you think about what was going on, uh, both in terms of what Adams was thinking and in terms of what Americans in general were thinking. Uh, for one thing, it takes place, uh, this, the, the, the line, we go not abroad in search of monsters to destroy, is from a July 4th speech, Most of that July 4th speech, as July 4th speeches did in those days, is an attack on Great Britain. Uh, That's what a July 4th speech was supposed to be about. I'm pretty sure no one at the time paid any attention to monsters being destroyed or not being destroyed. What they paid attention to uh, was Adams going after Britain for its evil monarchical principles and extolling Uh, the belief in individual rights and the Declaration of Independence that Americans stood for. There is even a moment in that speech where he speaks to the people, I'm I'm paraphrasing here roughly, people living under the sceptered lords and asking them to go thou and do likewise, as in make a revolution. And I can assure you this was not considered a cautious statement by people in Europe. Um, It was the the Russian foreign minister complained that Adams was inciting uh, revolutionary revolt. But let's go back just uh, to do some history, because one thing that these speeches that people pull out, they generally do violence to what is going on. So what is going on in that period? And Jim has laid it out to some extent. But when, when Adams is going after the not suggesting that we should not go in search of monsters to destroy, What is he talking about? Is he talking about launching an armada across the Atlantic, sending American soldiers to Europe to fight, or sending them anywhere for that matter? No. They are debating whether to extend recognition to the Latin American republics. Um, Now, as, as Jim rightly points out, John Quincy Adams is engaged already in a presidential campaign and even a wonderful faithful servant of America, like John Quincy Adams, was also a politician. And so he and and Clay were in a war with each other, and they were using policy as a way of fighting that as, as part of their war. And the truth is, is that uh, it Adams thought that his transcontinental treaty was going to be a major success that was going to help launch him into the presidency. It is also true that Henry Clay agreed, and would have loved to have seen that treaty fall apart. And so yes, Henry Clay was for recognizing those republics right away. And John Quincy Adams was not for doing that, because he worried that Spain would then walk away from the treaty and his great treaty would be gone. But that's what the debate was about. There were no monsters. We were not destroying. It was a question of, of recognizing Latin republics or not recognizing Latin republics. So we didn't that year. We did two years later. After the treaty was signed, uh, we went ahead and recognized those republics. By the way, no harm came to the United States from that particular monster destruction. Um, In fact, you could argue, unfortunately, the harm that came to the United States was as a result of the Transcontinental Treaty. And I think that Adams himself was ultimately aware of that because of territories that it took, which later became slave territories and became part of the great debate Uh, that led to the Civil War. But certainly recognizing the Latin republics did not have any negative effect on American interests uh, when we did. Now, not only, therefore, was this a temporary dispute, uh, but then when you look at John Quincy Adams' behavior afterwards, after he's got his transcontinental treaty, after the United States has gone ahead and recognized these Latin republics, now listen to the instructions that Secretary of State John Quincy Adams gives to all the new American ministers who have been sent to these Latin republics. It's really quite an extraordinary set of instructions if you think about what he's doing, what he's saying. He he instructs the diplomats that, quote, the emancipation of the South American continent has opened to the whole race of man prospects of futurity in which the United States will be called in the discharge of its duties to itself and to unnumbered ages of posterity to take a conspicuous and leading part. Um, It was the duty of the United States to establish the foundations of relations with South America upon principles of politics and morals that were new and distasteful to the thrones and dominations of the elder world. Um, He goes on to say that American ministers should use their influence in Latin nations to support the Republican principle against any local hankering after monarchy and to enforce a separation between the republicanism of the American system, i.e. the New World on the one hand, and the monarchical system that prevails uh, in Europe. And he really goes on in quite an extraordinary way uh, to explain what the dispute is, the ideological dispute, that is animating world affairs at that time. So these are instructions from the Secretary of State to their ambassadors. Uh, to his ambassadors. The European alliance of emperors and kings have assumed as the foundation of human society the doctrine of inalienable allegiance. Our doctrine is founded upon the principle of unalienable right. The European allies therefore have viewed the cause of South Americans as rebellion against their lawful sovereign. We have considered it as the assertion of natural right. And we have constantly favored the standard of natural rights. This is instructions to ambassadors. So Was ideology and morality part of John Quincy Adams' thinking about foreign policy? Absolutely. And there was a good reason for it, if you think about the context in which this is all occurring. uh, Because Americans are not the only ones thinking ideologically about the world. All the great powers at that time are thinking ideologically. The Spanish Revolution of of 1820, which overthrows uh, a monarchy, Uh, and is then reversed by a French invasion. Uh, The French, by the way, also having had their revolution overthrown, uh, all of which is under the overall guidance of Tsar Alexander, who is the original sort of uh, gendarme of Europe, and he stands for absolutism. And he puts together what he calls the Holy Alliance. And the goal of that Holy Alliance is to snuff out all these revolutions and, in fact, to snuff them out on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, And that's one of the reasons we even get to the Monroe Doctrine, is that uh, there is some kind of threat out there that the Holy Alliance, led by Russia, will send forces uh, over to the New World to impose monarchies and destroy this revolution. And if you look at British policy during this entire period, the policies first of Castlereagh and then of Canning It is all about balancing themselves between the sort of radicalism of the New World and the absolutism of the Eastern monarchies and with Britain trying to find its place in the middle. And so the entire discourse at this time is ideological, and Adams is a full participant uh, in that discourse. it, it may be true that you could say he was being prudent, but since no one was ever recommending that any forces be sent anywhere, I don't know what he was being prudent against. Um, there was never a suggestion that the United States, even if it recognized Greek independence, was somehow going to become involved in sending forces over to do anything about it. And the Monroe Doctrine is also one of the most misunderstood um, pieces of uh, American policy and history because it is thought to be a division that is geographical between the New World and the Old World. But as Adams understood it, as Monroe understood it, as Madison and Jefferson understood it, it was a divide that was ideological. It was ideological first. It was a concern that monarchy would be transplanted into the New World. Yes, they didn't want to have these countries having colonies in there. That was a strategic interest. But the big division was an ideological division. So in that sense, um, I, I'm, as I say, I, I guess, I, like in a, reason, a recent debate, I'm arguing with somebody who's not here. Um, because I'm arguing against realists uh, of a true sense uh, who insist that John Quincy Adams was a realist in the sense of not focusing on these kinds of issues. Let me just say one final thing. The last thing I will say is this man was ultimately willing to sacrifice any definition of the national interest if doing so was necessary to defeat slavery. And that included not only welcoming a civil war, but in 1840 it also meant colluding with the British to get Britain to come in to take control of Texas lest Texas become as part of an abolitionist movement. Um, and he was sort of consciously limiting American sovereignty on the continent if that sovereignty was going to lead to slavery. This is a man who had morality at the top of his agenda, I would say. So, So,
1: you would have even more material to use against me if you had heard the most recent talk I gave about Adams, which was in Boston at the Massachusetts Historical Society, in which I juxtaposed Adams and Lincoln. And I said, Adams was a classic example of moral purism, and Lincoln was a classic example of the suppleness of a politician. So that raises the question, Bob has said that realism is a kind of species of um, a kind of moral indifference. That is, to, to care about morality is to lead yourself astray. I'm actually not, I think we're probably disagreeing not at all about Adams, but but actually about this word. And and I want to say why I think the word is relevant, but also I want to bring it up to today so that it doesn't seem like an entirely archaic argument. Adams was a completely morally driven person. If you read my book, you will see that on every page. And if I thought that he were not, I probably wouldn't have found him such a compelling figure. And yet, nevertheless, I say that he's a realist. Why? There is an element of realism, the kind of analytical understanding of the world. The world, nations are driven not by moral principles but by objective national interests. Adams didn't think that. And as Bob quite rightly says, the premise of the Monroe Doctrine is there are competing political systems in the world, republicanism against monarchism. It wasn't only Adams who thought that. Everyone at the time would have thought that. This idea that uh, that, uh, being a republic means you'll have the same foreign policy as a similarly situated authoritarian country, nobody would have have thought that. Um, And yet I still say that he was a realist in some meaningful sense. Why? And so this question of whether it is in America's interests to pursue, to to seek to have its values replicated abroad, whether it is possible to have them replicated abroad. This is a question that, it's a burning question today. And when we talk about realism today, not in the academic sense, but just in the kind of um, newspaper sense, the question often arises, to what extent can the United States and to what extent should the United States? seek to engage in democracy promotion, a subject which I've also written a book about, and a whole series of other policies which have to do with trying to create a better world. Here, Adams was deeply skeptical, and I just want to say why I think that was and why that makes him a realist in some sense, even if not at all in the sense that, that Bob has laid out. First of all, like many realists of not today, like the classic realists like George Kennan in the 1950s, Adams thought the United States had to choose between having a far more outgoing and aggressive foreign policy, which he feared would be a militaristic foreign policy, and preserving this special thing, its republicanism, which to him was the very core of its own morality. And he tended to see the two as being antithetical to each other. So if you go back to that July 4th speech, he says that if the nation involves itself, as he was claiming Henry Clay would, and and it was not, by the way, only a matter of the Spanish Republic, so that was one of the issues. If the United States did that, he said, the fundamental maxims of her policy would insensibly change from liberty to force. She might become the dictatress of the world, she would no longer be the ruler of her own spirit. That is to say that in order for the United States to maintain its own republicanism, it would have to engage in a special kind of restraint abroad. This, by the way, is exactly what George Kennan said in the famous uh, speech he gave about the Spanish-American War, which Kennan saw as being the, the great example of the United States having lost sight of its traditional sense of realism and restraint. That's one. The other is that Adams was profoundly skeptical about the capacity of other states to be changed by the United States and themselves to change. It's a very, uh, there's a a kind of, a deep learned skepticism, I would say, from his years in in diplomacy. And so in his, his, uh, before he gave that speech in 1821, he was reacting in part to a conversation he'd had with Clay. Clay had come to him in the spring of that year and had given him his ideas about why the United States needs to champion democracy abroad. And this is what Adams said to Clay. He said, so far as they were contending for independence, I wished well to their cause, but I had seen and yet see no prospect that they would establish free or liberal institutions of government. They're not likely to promote the spirit either of freedom or of order by their example. They have not the first elements of good or free government. Arbitrary power, military and ecclesiastical, was stamped upon their education, upon their habits and upon all their institutions. Well, anyone who has read, for example, the famous essay by Jean Kirkpatrick called Dictatorship and Double Standards, which basically explains why uh, all the countries whom Jimmy Carter was in love with would never become democracies, and she was, thank God, wrong, um, would recognize that. That was exactly what she thought and what, what, what many people who describe themselves as realists think. And so... I hesitate to use this word, which is a word invented in the 1950s, realist, which has very specific resonances for our own time in relation to a person who is living in an utterly different context. I think it's useful, though, because we still have with us today this debate about how the United States should behave in the world. And I don't think that debate simply breaks down to... Do we think that the world, that the only thing that matters is interest or do we think the only thing that matters is values? It also breaks down to what our own experience has told us. And so, I mean, I'm actually far more on, on Bob's side of this question about realism and whatever we call ourselves who aren't realists. And yet the fact is that the last dozen or so years has been a very chastening one. And as many people have, uh, Deep second thoughts about this uh, sort of mission civilatrice that the United States has, and it is in that respect that I find Adams so interesting, because before the United States had been through any of these experiences at all, he already had this deeply chastening uh, mentality.
2: Uh, I- I really have a hard time squaring with what you're saying with what he was actually talking about at that time. I mean, here is a man who did use force uh, directly in order to convince Spain to agree to give up everything they gave up with. He was delighted that Andrew Jackson was running around Florida uh, beating up Spaniards uh, and used that as part of his negotiation to conquer a vast continent by the way, which was not an empty continent. And his attitude toward the uh, poor inhabitants of that continent was that they could either civilize themselves or get out of the way. Uh, So this is this man who's worried about becoming, you know, we're so interested in power that we're gonna lose our soul. Uh, The man had no difficulty wielding power in ways that we might think today Uh, and there were even some who thought at the time uh, had all kinds of immoral consequences. Uh, When he is talking about whether to recognize the Latin republics or not, he's not even, as I say, he's not even talking about using force. Now, you're right about one thing, and I think it's worth being specific here. What he doubted was that these Catholic countries Mm -hmm. could possibly become Democrats. And the prejudice against Catholic countries becoming democratic was as old as Protestant America. And the belief, there was this whole belief about the the Spanish black history and uh, that these people had been taught the worst elements of a brutal Catholicism. And right up until, I would say, the 1950s, it was an article of faith, even among American political scientists, that Catholic countries could not possibly... Including Spain
1: and Portugal, including France, for that matter.
2: So... uh, so that was this particular prejudice he had. Now, interestingly, you read his statements. Clay's response is, that is what monarchs always say, that men are incapable of being educated to democracy. But we, Americans, don't believe that's true. Uh, and, of course, that is the argument that we've been having, and not just for 15 years, but for uh, 60 years or more ever since the United States was in a position to do anything
1: about anything. And but, by the way, in these matters you and I would be on the Henry Clay side. John Quincy side. Adams was on a different side.
2: Except when John Quincy Adams wasn't arguing with Clay at that moment because as I say when he then was the Secretary of State he was talking exactly about these issues in his instructions. So I we have to deal with the fact that people politicians don't always are not always consistent and it's really hard to know. I know that's shocking to all of you. Um, <laughs> But even John Quincy Adams, I think, was capable of talking himself into something. And the extreme rhetoric that he used to talk about monsters that being destroyed when no one was talking about doing any such thing. However, that's neither here nor there. I do think it is a relevant question since you've brought us up to the recent period. But it has been a key question for Americans in even talking about it. And by the way, I'm not talking about... Invading countries, no, we've never invaded countries in order to promote democracy. But whether or not countries that we are dealing with are capable of democracy, we have gone through an evolution. We believed that Catholic countries could not be democracies. Then we believed for a very long time that Asian countries could not be democracies because of their Confucian society. And with, with, with Catholics, it was the pope who was in control, and they had a rigid hierarchy. It's right. We've gone through every... Uh, racial and ethnic group in the world and overcome this belief and we've we've adopted clay's view that these people are capable of it except now with one exception and that is that we do not believe we i use the term advisedly i don't mean me uh, that islamic countries can be democratic so we've having dismissed all the others uh, and decided, well, yes, apparently Catholics and Asians can be democratic, but Muslims cannot be. And that is sort of where we are right now. And I, I must say, even on that issue, and we can have a lengthy debate on that, I am still more with Clay uh, than I am with the anti-Catholic John Quincy Adams.
1: Let me just stop you for a second, because it's now seven twelve, and so uh, I want to give anyone who'd like to ask a question a chance to do so. Are there microphones on both sides? I think there are. And so anyone who would like to ask a question, please uh, come up to the microphone on on either side. And uh, we have, until about 7.30, we want to make sure we get everybody home before the first pitch is thrown in tonight's Mets game, which I know you're all, your minds are already shifting to that. So, um... Uh, if, now, if, of course, if nobody has any questions, Bob and I will be really delighted to continue talking. We've answered all possible yeah, questions. Exactly, I'm right. sure. Okay. Well, all right. So I'm, I'm just going to continue until until uh, somebody gets up there. So, uh, but I can't tell. I mean, it sounds like you're saying you think that that these passages that I've read are actually kind of the minor key. And the major key is Adams' moralism. But I mean, I think you're quite right in saying that even a person as deeply thoughtful as Adams doesn't fully square his own practice with his own principles. And so that's why I say that I see him as every bit as supremely morally driven as you do. And it may be that it is therefore contradictory for him to be dispensing this advice, which he does from the the time he's 25 to the time he's 70, about the need to uh, adopt prudence rather than passion, these chastening things. They are both there. And so I think the the George Kennan types who, who seek that in Adams and find it in Adams are not perverting the meaning of the man. They actually are seeing a kind of uh, uh, knowledge that came out of his own experience in Europe that was something that was mostly new in American life and to at least Adams' own mind was part of a coherent worldview, even if you or I may see it as being self-contradictory.
2: My objection, and it's a particular objection to what... K- Kennan has is guilty of it, and others who have followed in his footsteps are guilty of it. Which is trying to go back to the past to find a usable past. Uh, what I would say about John Quincy Adams, Wait, your
1: whole, but your whole, bio, I mean, you're writing a history of American foreign and, policy. And I'm willing. Is that a usable past?
2: No, it's a usable past. All right, it's an abusable past. Let me put it that way.
1: <laughs> but I mean, your it, history you, talks no, no, about America as his, as, a, as an ideological country, right? Because so, it is an ideological right, country. I
2: agree. But but. History is supposed to uh, make sure that you understand what the issues are in context. And it's very tricky and usually dangerous to pull things out and find what you need for your own period of time. And we're all guilty of it to some extent, but we also need to be cautious about it. And so a lot of the whole discourse that we're having about John Quincy Adams has nothing to do with the time that he was living in. And so, yes, there are things you can find in John Quincy Adams that you like. There are things you can find in Washington's farewell address that realists like, except that Washington wasn't talking about any of those things in the farewell address. And so they find words that are useful for for their purposes, as I say, as we all can. Uh, What I would would just caution all of us who who read history and write history is it's very important not to read history backwards. Uh, You have to read history in its context, and you have
1: to read it Read it forward yeah. as well. I would just say that I'm someone who doesn't actually share the realist point of view. No, who I, I, nevertheless that. sees that in Adams. Okay, so, well, so I'm almost seeing it. I'm working myself. on. I, I okay. maybe by the third time we get to this, I'm going to talk you out. <laughs> yes,
0: of it. please. So, do we have realists and moralists today? I mean, I heard heard uh, heard you invoke Jimmy Carter. Was he a moralist? Did that account for his? I
2: mean, I, in my view, the the whole the, it, when you come to. American statesmen and American foreign policy and, and what America actually does, the dichotomy is useless. Uh, there is always a moral and ideological element to everything that anyone ever does. And whenever we talk about this, this great use of the term, if people don't say realist, they say pragmatist. And my question is always, pragmatist toward what? Because whether you are pragmatic or not has to do with what you're trying to accomplish. And I think what people tend to do is take for granted what it is they're trying to accomplish. So the fact is, America is always animated by the fact that we are a democracy, by the fact that we have principles that we believe are true, and we are also animated the way other nations are by tangible interests. Sometimes these things conflict and we're constantly trying to find our way through it. But to say that anyone is just a moralist or just
1: a realist is absurd. I would just add one thing, which is that in his book, Diplomacy, Henry Kissinger, the arch-realist, sadly concedes that all presidents, at least since Teddy Roosevelt, have basically been moralists in some way, even Richard Nixon, even the first George Bush, a famous avatar of realism. So it is deeply in the American grain And there are few Metternichs amongst us, except perhaps for Mr. Kissinger.
0: Yes, sir. Does the role that um, Adams play in the Amistad case give evidence of him being a realist or not?
1: Well, from Bob's point of view, it it absolutely shatters my whole argument.
2: Well, you're not making that argument. But that's obviously, you know, all his work uh, with regard to slavery is clearly expressing the moral core that he devotes his life to. You know? He doesn't in fact devote his life to expanding American power. In fact, he takes steps that would ultimately, could ultimately destroy America in the interest of purifying it from this moral stain. I think that's, that's the man.
1: Yes, and so again, if, if one thinks that to be moral is therefore not to be a realist, then it, uh, then I, it is clear. One must not describe him as a realist. I am trying to hold out the argument that it is possible to be the one and the other, at least in a a limited but meaningful sense. But his role in the Amistad is is a heroic one. And he he ends by giving a a nine-hour speech over two days before the Supreme Court. And, And he points to the Declaration of Independence on the wall. And he says, buy that document on that wall. You must let my defendants go free. And people were weeping. And, you know, and it was amazing. There were, were eight justices at that point, of whom seven had been appointed by slaveholding presidents. And he won seven to one. It was amazing. And it was a, a, a moment of moral beauty. Yes?
0: But can't, can't we just say he's a Republican? Because Republicanism is always a mix of impossible idealism and down to earth realism. Republican style has, like, very lowbrow, you know, scurrilous, and then it's also very highbrow and soaring. He's a Ciceronian. His lectures on rhetoric that he gave at Harvard, he was, like, the first Wilson professor of rhetoric there, actually are all Ciceronian nature, and he's steeped in Republicanism, and that's sort of what's characteristic of Republicanism. It's
1: the word he would have used for himself.
2: But I just, I mean, let's not let ourselves off the hook. I mean, republicanism is a revolutionary doctrine historically. It is at its core a revolutionary doctrine. Its, its consequences have been revolutionary. The United States is a revolutionary power. It is not a status quo power. It has been revolutionizing the world for both good and for ill, uh, you could argue. But in any case, to start with republicanism is not to be pragmatic in the context of the world as it existed.
1: Though if I, so let me, let me say one thing in that regard, which is though he, Republicanism is a very good description of Adams' sense of himself, when he looked, for example, at the Republicanizing mission of the French Revolution, he saw in it nothing but horror and, and disruption. And unlike many Americans who felt their own Republicanism was reflected in the French Revolution, Adams had a reaction that was virtually indistinguishable from that of Edmund Burke. He thought of it as being.
0: That's a democratic revolution to him, not a. Hmm? That's not really a republican revolution for Adams. Of course, the French
1: were were proclaiming everywhere they went, they were creating republics, and Adams thought that was madness. Um, Yes.
2: I had always thought that uh, John Quincy Adams ran a couple of the nastiest political campaigns <laughs> in our history. And how, how can you sit there and call him a moralist when he, when he reminds me very much of what's going on right now? Well, that's a little strong. Would well, you yeah. want to defend John Quincy Adams' political campaigns.
1: Okay, so this is, is and an I would say you're about half right. The only, the only thing I would dissent from is the word ran. And so if you oversee, a thing which is uh, brutal and ugly, you are morally responsible for it. It is still different from you know, Richard Nixon making you know, secret phone calls in the basement. So Adams uh, was profoundly torn by his own ambition. He could not accept the idea that he was ambitious. You can be ambitious for great things. You can be ambitious to, to be a great Republican leader. But the idea of personal ambition was anathema to him, as it would have been to his father, as it would have been to the whole founding generation. And so, when it came time to act in a way where you can only succeed by fully accepting and acting upon your own personal ambition for yourself, he was forever disclaiming the consequences of his acts or finding ways of not having to know about them. And so, the um, 18... The 18- 24 uh, election uh, was really dirty, um, and the 1828 election possibly dirtier. And in in 1828, uh, when he was running again against Jackson, of course he got he got his clock cleaned. Um, uh, he, Henry Clay and Daniel Webster were basically his campaign managers, and you see all these letters between them saying, "You know, I found this editor in Cincinnati who I think is really going to be great for us." And the editor in Cincinnati is printing articles that basically say that that uh, a- Andrew Jackson is uh, a mulatto, uh, and and uh, his wife is a harlot. Uh, and Jackson uh, uh, is responsible for the murder of an uh, American soldier. I mean, horrible things. And Clay and Webster are saying, okay, how can we get some money to this guy? <laughs> now, Adams didn't know about that. He was not running the campaign. He had no, I feel quite confident he didn't know about it. But Seriously, it was done on his behalf. He didn't know? No, he didn't know. I'm, I'm quite certain he didn't know. I'm we quite, just don't have to, the, His emails were never... Right. Uh, <laughs> right. No, no, Clay and Webster knew he wouldn't want to know. They would never tell him. Right, it's like
2: it's like Christie and the Bridge incident. But, exactly. But, but, but can I just say, your, I, your point is well taken, and I want to make the further point that a person who is willing either to preside unknowingly or to be conducting as vicious a campaign to get elected, we can't imagine exagger, him exaggerating how exactly he felt about recognizing the Latin republics, but that has to be taken at face value. I mean, he was a politician, and we have to understand that he would say things that he felt were necessary right, to so get Bob, himself elected. So, Bob, you're saying that
1: the parts that are sincere are the parts that agree with your point of view I, and the parts that don't are the <laughs> insincere political
2: parts. I'm saying, I'm saying when he's writing private, you know, uh, uh, instructions to his ambassadors as Secretary of State when the issue's no longer relevant, are different from things he says in a public, what is essentially a campaign speech. Yes, I think I trust more what he said in things that he never thought would right. see the light of day. Well,
1: I, so again, where we disagree is I'm totally agreeing with you about his moral drivenness. And yet I'm saying there is an element that it is, that it is useful and correct to describe as realism, which has to do with his policy, his distrust of, of, of um, the kinds of passions which Today, arguably, led to, I don't know, the, the war in Iraq. Um, his 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 counsel, sorry, I, did, I, I, was don't, don't do I was trying to not say that. Don't do I was trying to not say that, but I said it anyway. You can't
2: go from the transcontinental
1: <laughs> treaty know, to the I war in Iraq. I know, I should have found something. Bef- <laughs> uh, um, something in between. Something in between uh, You know, Woodrow Wilson's uh, uh, Let's policy. Let's not even go and, there either. D- that's, d- okay. that's, a, that's a second debate that okay. we'll have. Um, uh, so anyway, so there is a doctrine of restraint, and prudence, which is very much anticipatory of the kind of language that the, re- the post-war Let me ask you this question, state.
2: and then we should let this, this gentleman ask his question. But if, the, if he did not have the transcontinental treaty up, and if he were not running for president, do you think he still would have posed the
1: recognition of Latin American republics? Uh, no his uh, his opposition to the recognition of the republics was completely tactical. I agree, but what is have this have language
2: that- about go not abroad in search of money? he makes a timeless statement about a tactical decision.
1: Yeah, but so but I the, and so you're saying that's purely political and I'm saying that reflects some deep thought in him. Okay. And because that is consistent with so many other things that he said, it shouldn't be dismissed as mere Polemics. Yes, sir. On the, first of all, on the question that the gentleman before me raised, uh, vituperative, uh, very uh, scurrilous political campaigns in the first half of the 19th century, the 20th century had nothing on the 19th century in terms of dirty politics, dirty press, and so forth. If you study the history of the press in this country, as I'm sure both of you have, um, it was pretty, pretty rotten. My question, if I was parachuted in here knowing nothing about Quincy or about anybody else, I would assume that Quincy was a fairly independent agent as Secretary of State. You really spoke about nothing, unless I missed it, about the dynamic between Quincy and his boss when he was Secretary of State.
2: Well, you you did. I mean, they had a very long debate, uh, Monroe and Adams, about the Monroe doctrine. I actually think the debate ended up more in the middle than people suggest, because the reaction of Europe, interestingly, was exactly the same as it would have been if Monroe had said everything that he Mm -hmm. wanted to say. Uh, Metternich, um, who is the great sort of spokesman and defender of absolutism is outraged by the monroe doctrine statement not only the assertion by the united states that the western hemisphere was now sort of its purview which was an extraordinary thing to assert in 1823 but also he heard loud and clear the revolutionary statements the fact that the united that the americans and monroe really did favor the greek revolution really did favor liberalism in Europe. He heard it loud and clear. So who actually won that debate is an interesting question. But that, that they, Adams did exist, uh, and in, in a way you give him a lot of credit for winning that argument because on the Monroe Doctrine, should we have an alliance with the British? Even Jefferson, the great British, the great Anglophobe of all time was all for it at that moment. And, and one of the reasons, by the way, that Adams was against it was because one of the things that Canning uh, wanted at that time was they should declare Cuba off-limits. And Adams being the guy, he was not going to declare anything off-limits, uh, not much less Cuba. And so one of the reasons he didn't want the deal, which was the alliance, was he didn't want to take Cuba off the table for eventual acquisition, which
1: brings us to the Spanish-American War. So one last thing in that respect. So someone said is the right word for him, Republican, and perhaps it is. It is also he was a nationalist. And so another thing, I mean, so the, the, the transcontinental treaty, where everybody around him said, enough already. We've already gotten the Spanish on their back heels. He said, no, I'm going to get more, more, more. He disagreed sharply with Monroe. But Bob referred to uh, Jackson's rampage through Florida. and. Uh, Everybody said, we've got to stop this guy. He's totally violated the instructions that Monroe gave him. And it's a somewhat opaque question whether we did or not. No. Only Adams defended Jackson and said, no, anything this guy could get, we should, we should want. And so so if, maybe this seems like I'm contradicting my own point. Uh, but for Adams, that's why I said expansion at home, restraint abroad. And maybe the complicating thing is what's abroad and what's at home when you <laughs> haven't yet filled up your continent, right? Any part you don't have is, is abroad, but Adams didn't think that way. Adams thought this continent was there for us to expand across. And so if anything, he was more of a fervent, single-minded nationalist than Monroe was, perhaps than anybody else in the cabinet was. Well I think it is now 7.30, so thank you so much for your excellent <laughs> questions. Yes. Uh, Yes, James Trout, Robert Kagan, it was wonderful having you. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, Good evening, everyone. My name is Alex Castle. I'm the manager of public programs here, and it was great having you all with us. Thank you for joining us. I just want to remind you that our speakers' books are available for purchase at our museum store kiosk behind you uh, by the Central Park west side of the building. They'll be signing books for a little bit, so please join us. And uh, one more thing, I just wanted to point out that our film series is going to be starting on Friday. It's going to be our first film, and it actually does tie into this conversation because it is, uh, it's is—it's called The Best Man, 1964 film, uh, about two presidential candidates, one moralistic, the other uh, more ruthless, who are vying for the candidacy. So uh, please join us for that, 7 o'clock. Philip Bobbitt, constitutional scholar, will be making introductory remarks. So again, thank you all very much. Film flyers are outside too if you want to pick one up.